Today's special federal election recap episode of Socially Democratic is proudly presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street is a progressive campaign agency that specialises in community organising. We partner with businesses, organisations, unions and social democratic parties across the globe to develop community organising strategies and train folks to build power from within their community. And in 2022, Dunn Street will continue to work with people that want to share their stories, take action, uh, inspire others and organise communities for change. To find out how you can partner with Dunn Street, hit us up at dunnstreet.com.au. Today's episode is also proudly brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Are you highly organised and love working in a fast-paced environment? Morris Blackburn, Australia's leading plaintiff law firm, is looking for an executive assistant to support their deputy CEO on a 12-month fixed-term contract based here in Melbourne. This will include coordinating and supporting the deputy CEO with high-level administrative assistance, coordinating documents with strong attention to detail, building and managing relationships with key internal and external stakeholders, and providing excellent client service, as they always do. Apply for this job by going to morrisblackburn.com.au forward slash careers, be part of change and fight for fair, apply now. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast out every Friday that dives into the progressive campaigns and the issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. And we are still focusing on the biggest campaign in our neck of the woods right now, which is the federal election here in Australia. There are nine days to go um, in this campaign. Voting has already begun. So essentially it is election day every day for the next uh, two weeks. Um, And joining me once again, is uh, our two regular guests to help me unpack the week that was. Um, Emma Dawson from Per Capita and the former uh, campaign director and um, senator and member for Batman. Uh, David Feeney will once again dive into the week that was and obviously we had the debate and two debates. One was a complete shit show and one was kind of a bit meh. Um, but it did sort of frame up a conversation which I think will dominate the campaign for the rest of the, uh, the, rest of the cycle which will be based on uh, on wages, which is great because it's on our turf. So anyway, we'll hear from David and uh, Emma on their thoughts on how the week went. Uh, don't forget as well, we did a bonus podcast this week, which was with um, a digital uh, strategist and, and organiser. Uh, Jack Milroy came on the show. Um, we put that show up on Monday, so you should go back and check that one out. And next Monday, we're dropping another bonus uh, episode which is kind of like a, it's an episode that is just going to work out what is the pathway to victory for Labor on Election Day. It's kind of like a form guide. It's looking at all the battleground seats right across the country. So we're getting together a host of uh, uh, guests to come on the show who've all got campaign uh, uh, strategizing and campaign backgrounds uh, for the Labor Party uh, to discuss those critical battleground seats in WA, we've got someone from WA come on the show. We've got someone from Queensland coming on the show. We've got someone from New South Wales coming on the show. And we've got someone coming on the show to do the, all the other states as well. So it'll be a bit of a monster episode, but I think it's one you wanna, you'll want to uh, listen to just to sort of give yourself a sense of what are the seats you want to pay attention to on election night when you sit down and watch the, uh, on the coverage on the ABC. Okay, uh, don't forget to subscribe to the show, which is um, on, um, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Give us five stars on whatever app you're using and leave us a review if you use Apple Podcasts. And to follow us for all the updates, follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. All right, enough from me. Let's get to today's episode.
We are taping this one on a Thursday evening, as it's just been pointed out to me by one of our wonderful guests on the land of the Wurundjeri people. And welcome back to our weekly federal election uh, recap episode. Voting has started. It's nine days left in this election campaign. And to help me break down the week that was week five of this Fed campaign, I'm once again joined by the executive director for Per Capita, an independent progressive think tank, Emma Dawson. Welcome back, Emma. Thank you, Stephen. Good to be here. And former Senator federal member for Batman and the former ALP campaign director, David Feeney. David Feeney, welcome back to the show. Good evening. Thank you very much. Okay, so uh, a lot to talk about um, from the week, and I feel like a lot of this conversation is going to be focused on the debates. We had two debates this week, one on Sunday night that was hosted by the, the Nine Network, which is the second of the leaders' debates, and then we had another one last night, which is Wednesday night, which was on the Channel 7 network, which is the third and final leaders debate. But let's focus on the debate that was on Channel 9 on Sunday night. We have a lot to talk about. I don't even know. I don't. I, I just haven't even really written any questions for it because it was just such a shit fight. I just really want to get your downloads from both of you. Um, and maybe we can break it up into two parts, the debate itself and then the post-debate debacle, which is in itself was incredibly funny. Uh, starting with you, Emma, um, watching the debate and it unravel, can you actually pinpoint the moment where it did start to unravel and what were your sort of key takeaways from this debate? It started to unravel when Sarah Arbo said welcome to tonight's debate. I mean, it was just, an, it, you know, just from the get-go, it was a shamozzle. Um, and I think it, it, it was the format, right? The, the, you've got 60 seconds, you can talk over each other. Um, Morrison was always going to take advantage of that. Uh, it was almost unwatchable and certainly didn't tell voters anything they needed to know um, about what the two parties were offering. I think Albo... You know, he had two options. He could either sit there and, and look like an observer or he could enter the fray, and he had to enter the fray. Um, and he managed to do it, I think, without <laughs> too much um, um, humiliation, but it was not either of the, the, the leader's finest moments. And I think Nine nine has to take responsibility for this. You know, they, they did not have a format that worked. Um, there was a lot of self-interest at play in that debate, as evidenced by the last question, right, which was about sport on television. Mm. We got that in the seven debate as well, but not as the final question of the night. So that, you know, and then the the sort of defence of it is, well, it rated really well. You know, that, that's not the pur- purpose of these things, which is why we have a national broadcaster who doesn't care about ratings do them usually, or the National Press Club. Um, but, of course, both those things would involve Laura Tingle, of whom the Prime Minister is terrified. So... Um, I found it really unedifying, really unhelpful. The only good thing to come out of it was Catherine Murphy's piece in The Guardian the next day where she called it a shit blizzard um, and and then the delight of seeing Chris Ullman respond to that, which, you know, I, 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 I don't hate Chris the way a lot of people do, um, uh, but uh, I don't think it was his finest moment digging in on this. It was a real, it was the, possibly the worst uh, leaders debate I've seen. Lots to unpack there, but let's get David's thoughts as well before we dive into some of the nitty-gritty blow-by-blow uh, moments from this debate. David, what are your thoughts on it? Uh, it was, without question, the worst debate I've ever seen, and I think the lesson has to be that next time they should try and get a moderator. Yeah. Um, and as we discussed when we were analysing the first debate, it was a slave to its format. Um, it was set up to create a gladiatorial punch-up and it delivered one. 
um, and asking the leaders to sort of move from um, one major area of policy to another within 60 seconds meant that every viewer had whiplash. It meant that there was sloganeering. There wasn't actually any decent debate. Um, I agree with Emma. I think both um, ended up looking, both of the contestants, and that's how they were framed, um, both of the contestants didn't do themselves much good. But I think actually on balance, the sheer ferocity and aggression of Morrison um, undermined him. Um, but that was true to some extent for both. I thought the cross-examination of the journalists was um, quite revealing. I mean, we saw the thoughtful and uh, philosophical questions from 2GB. Um, you know, how would you define a woman? That was just a oh. little hand grenade thrown in to try and get a culture war going in the middle of it. We saw, you know, references to um, former Senator Kimberly Kitching. Um, there was a series of questions which were all just designed to inflame um, and explode. Uh, absolutely uh, disastrous. And I spoke to a number of people who were involved in it the following day and they were very defensive about, uh, they were obviously pleased with their ratings, you know, showed that they were bullshit about how you know, it showed the leaders what they like under pressure and, um, you know, the, the producer was restraining the moderator from moderating and blah, blah, blah. They set up a shit fight. They got one. It did nothing for the debate um, and it was scandalously bad. Watching it, it I was having uh, PTSD. Do you remember one of the, the presidential debates from the last US presidential election campaign in 2020 when um, it was obviously Biden versus Trump and Trump was just talking over the top of Biden the whole time. And a couple of times Biden's going, come on, man. Like, Shut up, man. Yeah, yeah, you know, and it was, I remember watching that. I was horrified and Twitter was just lighting up going, this is a disaster. Like this, this has to stop. This is insane. And it was happening again on Sunday night. I was like, going, oh no, this is, this is shit. This is terrible. And Elbo, one of the things that frustrated me, I, I could see the frustration in Elbow, but when Elbow was trying to re was trying to reply to a question either posed by the moderator or the journalist or from Scott Morrison himself, Morrison kept on interjecting with other points, and then Elbow felt the need to answer that point as well. And I was just like screaming, "Elbow, just finish the thought! Don't worry about the interjections!" But it just he just never got a chance to give to finish a sentence or a paragraph. It was just it was it was just insane. It was, and I, like you, I got PTSD. I, I, we watch in the US debates with this format, which have two or three or six or eight contestants <laughs> fighting for primaries and so forth. And it did just look like those. And we know what they've done for American democracy. Yeah, exactly. And it just looked like those. It was awful. It was. And I think, you know, there was a, Morrison was always going to do that, right? If the format was going to allow him to interject and talk over Elbow, he's, he's clearly focused in the last two debates on trying to trip Elbow up and get him to say something wrong or something panicked. And like you, Stephen, I got the impression that Elbow was so sort of dodging and weaving and trying to avoid that that he didn't finish his own points. He was too desperate to kind of head off Morrison's attacks all the time. Um, I don't blame him for that. Mm. It must have been, you know, very confronting. But, yeah, it did not serve the viewer and it did not serve our a democratic contest, contest whatsoever. And what we haven't even mentioned yet is the voting. Oh, 
My God. We'll get to that in a moment. Um, there are a couple of points I want to finish off before we t- I mean, do get to that. Wow, really- did I, I had a bit to say to the Channel 9 team the next day about that one. <laughs> the Before we do talk about it, some of the, the I guess, well, I'll, I'll use in air quotes, the, the highlights for me um, was um, Elbow um, was taking a, a drink of water and Morrison said something clearly that absolutely ticked off Anthony in a way that, you, you know, but he couldn't. Because his mouth was full of water, he couldn't actually respond. So there was this moment of silence, and then you could hear, literally hear him go, mm, and then yell out, that's an outrageous slur. It was fantastic. I just loved that moment. It was, just, it was the only time we had, a, it was like a moment, it was like a calm, you know, when a cyclone sort of passes through, and there's just that moment of calm in the eye of the storm. <laughs> that moment, all was calm, and then back at it. The second one was that when they got to ask questions of each other and Al, um, Morrison clearly tried to set up Albanese as a flip-flopper, mm. um, which was very reminiscent of the sort of the Bush-Kerry debate, right? And as I could see him asking this question, I'm like, oh, here we go. I know what we're going to try to do here. And Elbo realised well, what the trap was. So he was trying to answer it in a way that he doesn't give an answer in which he flip-flops, right? But Morrison couldn't contain himself. He couldn't shut up and just let... Albanese answered the question. So we started interjecting and actually it was great for Elbow because he went, I don't need to answer this question now because you're now just yelling over the top of me and this has turned into another shit show again. It was just, even Morrison was his own worst enemy. He was. And I think if we step back and try to be, I mean, this might be a bit of, you know, wishful thinking on my, magical thinking on my part, but I think it cemented the idea, it could have cemented the idea that Morrison's a bit of a bully, particularly when he held his hand up to Sarah Arbo to say, you know, it was almost like talk to the hand, don't don't interrupt me. That was very dismissive, really reinforced what people like Julia Banks and others have been saying about his treatment of women. Whereas for Albo, the complaint has been that he's too mild and he's too held back and he hasn't got enough of the biff. So I think, you know, given it was horrible for both of them, but it's more likely to reinforce negative stereotypes of the Prime Minister and give people the belief that, oh, actually Albo has got a bit of passion in him, a bit of fight, which is what they've done, you know, the, the, the right-wing media and the Liberal Party have tried to portray him as, as not full enough of, of passion. Um, so I'm, my, my optimistic take is that that might be, that might be a good outcome. Oh, I think the def- Along with the Catherine Murphy story. I think it definitely, you're right, Emma, I think it definitely came out that, uh, that uh, Morrison looked like a bully um, yeah. massively. Like I just, I, if I was the Liberal Party campaign director, I wouldn't be pleased about the performance of my candidate that night. I was like, mate, what are you doing? Like you look like a prick. We're mm-hmm. trying to win votes here, not scare people away. And we've seen this in recent weeks is him losing that I'm just an easygoing bloke, you know, mm. getting more and more desperate, more and more shrill, raising his voice. To, and that's the that's the Morrison that insiders have told us he is. You know, he's a bully, he's a thug, he's uh, it's my way or the highway, I am the Prime Minister. Everyone from, uh, like I said, Julia Banks, um, Nikki Sather, even Barnaby Joyce has said this about him. And it's the opposite to the kind of daggy dad, laid-back, curry-cooking suburban man that he tries to portray. And voters are picking up on that. The polls now are showing that they just they can see through it and I think it reinforced that. David, now to your point that you wanted to raise before, you were very excited about this. Cephologists or anyone with a passing interest in elections or tallying of votes were screaming at the television as these idiots made a complete mockery of... Well, what I, I just loved it. So, I mean, there they were, having just presided over a clusterfuck. And, and they were then sort of, oh, the votes are coming in. Oh, they're changing. Oh, quick, 
um, you know, hot off the press, here's our latest update. I thought, really? Like, really? It was sad and tragic and pathetic. And, of course, um, you know, anyone who tried to vote knows that um, their system basically crashed because Channel 9 had planned for everything except viewers. <laughs> um, so what, it, it just was nonsense upon nonsense. Mm, mm. Uh, I mean, the only redeeming feature of that bullshit poll was that Labor won it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you, uh, if you folks... Because I don't think that counts for anything. Yeah, I know, and that's, that's the hysterical thing. We're getting, I was getting all upset about something that absolutely has no impact on what's going to happen in this campaign at all. And it was just <laughs> funny watching Chris Yulman and those guys trying to analyse their own yeah. terrible data and see what they could draw from it. Like, it was just insane what was going on. Kevin yeah. Bonham. Bring back the worm. Like, bring back the worm. I love the worm. I miss the worm. I miss the worm. But and what about the fact that the voting tally had you know, a button for coalition, a button for Labor, and then a, another button for the coalition just in case you yeah. missed the first one? In like, case you, got, you hit the wrong one accidentally. There's two, two choices, two choices. And that was like an election in Cuba. Um, Kevin uh, Bonham, who uh, is on Twitter, um, who um, I do, I like his um, sort of commentary on, on elections, Was it was just doing his head in. And his final tweet for the night before I think he had to go have a lie down, poor Kev, he said... Oh, and now it's a tie. So the result of the debate is that Morrison won and Albanese won and neither won and Channel 9 should be permanently restrained by constitutional amendment from conducting any electoral opinion process above the level of a tuck shop monitor. That just, <laughs> that just summed it up for me. I remember it was a great tweet. Uh, okay. Yeah. Are we done with the Channel 9 debate? I hope the country's done with the Channel 9 debate. I never want to revisit the Channel 9 debate again. No. Yeah. Okay, let's let's put a pin in that one. Let's move to Wednesday night and we had the Channel 7 debate. Um, uh, certainly a different vibe around yeah. this one. I still won't say it's perfect. There are some things that kind of annoyed me, but we certainly did get a little bit more substance from this debate and the format. Um, Emma, to you first. What were your thoughts on the Channel 7 debate? Well, it was a blessed relief after the Channel 9 one. I mean, like, it wasn't perfect, but... Um, you got a lot more out of it. And look, Mark Riley's a good, good political journalist, right? He and he he, he moderated it well. He managed it well, I think. Although, you know, comparatively to the Channel Nine one, and this is no reflection on Sarah Arbo. She was set up with a very bad format. Um, but no, Seven's debate last night was a lot more informative. The format was better. Uh, the questions were handled better. There was still a question about sport on TV, so showing the self-interest of the channels. Sorry, former anti-siphoning advisor. But it wasn't the last question of the night. Um, and I think what was really interesting about it to me was that it, it, it occurred on territory that had shifted to Labor's advantage because of the emerging focus on wages um, it was a debate that I, th I don't think the Prime Minister would have been expecting this. You know, it's a good 10 days before the end of the campaign. He's been running hard on you can't trust Labor with the economy. But suddenly the ground shifted beneath his feet and a good chunk of the first discussion was about wages. And Mark Riley re let that run, really. And I think that played well um, for us. Uh, and we can talk a bit more about that because I do want to get into that policy issue. But... Um, it was a lot more, it was it was much better conducted and I think the aftermath as well with the pub vote was, you know, it's nothing, nowhere near scientific, but it was, it was a lot better than the aftermath in the Channel 9 one. David, your thoughts? Yeah, well, I watched this um, in its entirety and uh, I, it was uh, a blessed relief compared to the anarchy of the previous Nine effort um, and it was... Uh, by contrast, a, a, a more thoughtful and interesting debate. Uh, I actually 
at the conclusion of that debate felt that it had been quite evenly matched between the two. But then clearly um, my jaded eyes uh, and my you know, labour anxieties um, misjudged that. In fact, it was a very decisive victory for Albo. We saw, um, I mean, for, for whatever that sample of persons is worth, it was an interesting collection of people who I, I don't think the statistics mean anything in terms of the individual seats, but looking them at them as a group, mm. they were definitely a group of um, typically unengaged um, and swinging voters. And I was surprised how decisively they were in favour of Albo. Um, and and the, that was very interesting to me. And clearly, the, the while there has been a lot of, and we'll talk more about this, I'm sure, while there... Anthony has certainly lost a lot of skin in this debate uh, over the course of this election. The Prime Minister's standing is in such a bad place. Um, It's very hard to see how it can be rescued. Again and again, they talk not just about his ferocity, but he's just a salesman. Um, He's not answering the questions. Um, I I thought it was a, a, a much better debate for Labor than I had appreciated when the siren went at the end. Emma, do you want to pick up on that? Let's talk about the wages because I thought it was interesting. They did lead off with that question and I'm just wondering about is we talked in the first debate about how this can, how a debate, whilst not many people watch it, it can frame the conversation going forward and we've got nine days to go and I'm wondering if um, if we are going to be spending the next nine days talking about wages, which is going to be good for us from a, from a campaign standpoint. Very good for us and um, I find it, absolutely remarkable. Uh, well, actually, it's not remarkable because Morrison's skills that the, the media fawn over is is uh, marketing, right? It's spin. Um, he doesn't understand the substance and I don't think he really understands the Australian people. You can't go to an election saying, I think you should take a real wage cut. It's delightful for us that he is, um, but that's effectively what he's saying. And I think the reason that Albo won so convincingly was on the substance. And I'm really impressed and relieved and uh, happy to see the real Albo come out in response to that question, right? When he was asked, do you think um, that wages should level peg with inflation? Absolutely. And he didn't resile from that. He softened and said, well, it's a decision for the Fair Work Commission. But if you're asking me if I think working people should go backwards, Absolutely not. That's not a focus group's response. That's what he believes. Um, And he's right. And it resonates with people. And he also used, I think, the very clever line, and I won't won't take credit for this, but I did put it in the chapter of the book that he uh, contributed to a couple of years ago, that these workers deserve more than thanks. They deserve a decent pay rise. You know, these are the essential workers that got us through the pandemic. They're the cleaners. They're the food delivery drivers. They're the retail workers. They're the ones that showed up to our house. So it naturally plays well for us. But also what was on show was the two men's genuine belief. And and the average punter isn't stupid on this stuff. They might not read, you know, the, the truth of someone's belief when it comes to the Solomon Islands. But when it comes to their wages and their income, they know they're going backwards. And what they saw there was a guy saying you shouldn't be going backwards and a guy saying, oh, well, actually... It's okay if you do because it's better for the economy. What's the economy? What's the economy if it's not people's household income? So I think, 
the, the issue played well for us, but more to the point, Albo's response was genuine. It was immediate, absolutely. He hasn't resiled from that word. And people know that he's on their side, and that is a bloody good thing for us. It's a bloody good thing for the country, but it's also a bloody good thing electorally for us in the last 10 days of this campaign. If the focus is on there's the guy, there's two guys running, one wants working, ordinary, working and middle-class families to get ahead and the other one's quite happy to see you go backwards, that's a pretty easy choice for the vast majority of voters out there. I think um, we saw the integrated Liberal News Limited campaign team make a <laughs> mistake this week. Yeah. Because when Albo was asked that question, um, you know, the in interest rates are 5.1%, do you think wages should go up by that amount? And Albo just said yes. Um, they got excited mm. and... They led with it, and last night I watched Paul Murray rave on about this interminably on Sky After Dark, um, and News Limited really thought they had something here. This was another Albo blunder on the campaign trail, and so they switched all their guns to him, and as Emma said, Albo didn't resolve from it. He did tweak it a little bit by saying it was, in fact, about a dollar for the worst paid. And, uh, mm. But nonetheless, we Labor stuck to its guns, absolutely the right thing to do, and suddenly the whole News Limited machine... Um, with its liberal appendage, um, had found itself having led the whole campaign into a labour issue. And suddenly we've got stories about, you know, Scott Morrison's pay has gone from four fifty to five fifty thousand dollars a year, uh, you know, and here are your wages. And suddenly they're in a swamp. And instead of embarrassing Labor for um, announcing an inflationary wages policy, they're just talking about wages. Uh, it was a it was a, a mistake that has cost um, the Liberal News Limited team um, several days, if not most of the week. David, do you? We're, we're going to talk about the um, the r recent round of uh, TV ads uh, that have sort of come onto our airwaves in the last twenty four hours in, in, in a moment. Uh, but do, as a campaign with your campaign director hat on, do, do you take this moment from the debate last night and this ongoing conversation around wages and? produce some contrast advertising, really ramming that home about wages? Because um, we've sort of seen the negatives from the Labor Party at the moment are really around, around about cost of living and, and managing yeah. the economy. And I'm wondering, do we just dial it into the, some of this wages stuff? Uh, well, I, I think the uh, sort of mix that Labor's got at the moment is, is right. And uh, if there's a nice, nasty grab of uh, Morrison announcing his view that um, everyone should take a hit for the greater good of the economy. I'm sure they'll use it. Uh, but uh, the the election is is exactly where you say, Stephen. I mean, this is now an election about costs of living. The khaki election has vanished. We had a we had a debate between defence um, uh, ministers this week between Dutton and O'Connor, and it was a civilised debate, and it passed for the most part unnoticed. Um, and this is from a government that wanted to have a khaki election. So, and I thought the most significant thing about that defence debate was the fact that so few were interested in it. Um, so, uh, the, this this election has not been about the things the government wanted it to be about. Um, it's been, and it's now, at least for the moment, an election about wages and cost of living. Um, it, and that is terrible territory for Morrison, and Labor's happy to stay in it. Emma, last week we hypothesised after the Labor Party launch that we wouldn't be 
getting so much more new policy announcements from the from the campaign. Um, were you right on that hypothesis? Where are we right now? And what are you what are you expecting from Labor going into the final stretch of the campaign? There's not a lot of new stuff coming out. You know, there's some really well targeted stuff like the stuff on um, on. Uh, teachers, uh, so encouraging high-performing graduates to become teachers, um, and there's those are very carefully targeted for the last two weeks of the campaign. What we'll see coming out now is stuff for the true believers, I think. Um, but it's about repeating and doubling down, and it's an absolute gift that this now it's not a gift. I mean, it's it's partly the nature of the challenge we're facing and the fact that Labor has policies in this area. But this focus on cost of living and focus on wages, um, he's he plays very well for us because we care about it. We have an answer for it, um, and we have when when the charges. I mean, the thing is, Morrison one week saying, "Well, there's nothing Albanese can do about wages." The next week saying, "Well, he's going to do too much." Um, but we can actually point to some policies and re-announce those policies now, like the like the intention to in, to amend the Fair Work Act for, for gender to close the gender pay gap, like the policy to support the wage rise for aged care sector workers and lift the cap on the public servant uh, on the public service and stop outsourcing so much work mm. there. Um, these are existing policies that will help with wage growth and will help with cost of living. Um, so, no, I don't think we're going to see, you know, massive new policies announced that are targeted at swinging voters because people are already voting. I know half a dozen people that have already voted. Um, and so what we'll see in this last fortnight is really honing in on that core message. And what I think we have to take advantage of in these last nine days is the flip that is on, the switch that is on now about who's a better economic manager. When it comes to cost of living and household incomes, we win that. We win that debate. And if we can reframe and continue to focus um, the the economic contest on that issue, then they've got nothing to offer on that except more bluster and more attacks. So I think policy-wise it's, it's right to start uh, narrowing it in, focusing on a few sops to the bait in the last fortnight, um, but really emphasising that this guy has not improved your standard of living on his watch it's gone backwards uh and so what is a good economic manager can i just um say a couple of things about policy uncharacteristically for me um the first is i think the government uh and morrison are really struggling for the fact that they have none yep um and that they don't have a proposition even something simple and banal which is often a liberal trick um there is no policy offering from the government, and that is a vulnerability. Yep. Uh, and we've seen in the debates that really leaves Morrison being uh, an opposition leader and just constantly on the attack because he has nothing to offer. I think that is a weakness. The Liberals needed to have an idea, a policy, a proposition of some kind. That Having no offering from them, I think we've seen this in the interviews with um, swinging voters, it, 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 it's hurting the Tories. Mm. But the other thing which is you know a, a threat for us is is this refrain well you know labor's got policies but they haven't even been costed um who's paying for them how are they being afforded um yeah you know, which is you know the great adage you did if you do dead if you don't but um at least with labor's vulnerability it can be repaired and buttressed mm. um through good communications the fact that the liberals are coming into the straight now with no proposition at all I think is a great vulnerability. And the fact that they've been in government for 10 years and at this key moment haven't been able to come up with a fucking idea 
just tell you everything you need to know about them. It was interesting watching the, the question on, uh, uh, w- which was sort of framed in that sort of gender equity and the 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 appeal to women voters around childcare. Morrison mm. had nothing to say, and he just crapped on for about two minutes. He actually should have just said, "You know what? We've got nothing on that one. We're just going to take a pass on that one." Next question, because honestly, it was just garbage what was coming out of his mouth. He, he doesn't had care. Nothing he doesn't care, and he doesn't know. And what really comes through to me is. This is a man, he, he's not the one to have said it. I think it was one of his, you know, Queensland senators who said that, stood up in the parliament and said that childcare is just women abrogating their responsibility to raise the next generation. Morrison believes that too. Mm. Deep down, that's what he believes. Jenny's never had a job, as far as I know. Um, and he comes, he, it shows when he talks about that. He tries to pay lip service to it, but he is so thoroughly, not just uninterested but disinterested in it, it if he it, he objects to it deep down and it shows um, that he can't even be bothered getting his head around the fact that childcare is something that families need because he is so deeply patriarchal and deeply conservative about these issues um, and that's why you know for all the what's wrong with this government and women he's a he's a really old-fashioned patriarchal misogynist mm. and it it's coming through and women know that his support among women is it's in the toilet because of that um, yes. and so that's why he has no policy because he doesn't actually want one he doesn't believe in it but to be fair to him even in those parts of the public policy where he is interested whatever they might be he hasn't come up with a fucking policy there either yeah, that's right i mean it's one thing to ignore um, you know, 52% of your population or microeconomic reform and getting women into the workforce. But he hasn't, I mean, he hasn't got a policy to build a church or a statue for himself or anything. He's, he's got nada. He had, he, had, he had recreating Captain Cook's circumnavigation of Australia that never happened. And I think since then he's been a bit policy shy, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> Let's... Well, we get, we're getting nasty now, but you know, it is laughable. It's laughable that we, we have an a government going to a second election with a completely bare policy cupboard and the fact that they're still being treated in an even-handed way by the media. is And the fact that Labor gets called out for having a small target strategy while Morrison wanders around with a no-target policy. Exactly. Yeah, I am enjoying, I must admit, I did enjoy a little bit uh, in the debate last night when Morrison was, um, you could see the frustration in in the Labor campaign being, air quotes, small target. I don't think it is small target, but the perception that it's being a small target. And it, do you remember in the 96 campaign yeah. when that, that's the, that is the campaign that Howard ran against um, against Keating? And you could see Keating's frustration in the debates and you could see Keating's frustration when he was doing media grabs and the fact that John Howard would rock up, do like a, an announcement where he didn't actually say anything and then hand out the sort of the, pr- the press notes afterwards and then piss off so the journalists couldn't ask him any questions. That was so small target. He was not even really there. And I can I, I just saw Morrison's frustration with it last night. I went, oh, that's what that feels like, you know, like there's shoes on the other foot now, motherfucker, you know. I don't mind the fact that you have to go through this pain um, for the fact that we are a small target in, uh, in your... But Howard was clever in 96. So remember, how would you like Australians to feel relaxed and comfortable? Mm-hmm. And we all mocked him for, you know, the policy vision of relaxed and comfortable. But, in fact, he had the mood and he understood the mood and he was pursuing it. Morrison doesn't understand the mood. He's not pursuing it. There's no great plan here. There's just, you know, a frustrated um, policy vacuum wandering the stage, belting out at people. 
And I think people are starting to see too, and the media is reluctantly, other than the obvious suspects coming around to this, actually he doesn't have the pulse of the Australian people. For all that, you know, world's least John Howard fan from day one, but he did, he was very good at that, at sort of tapping into frustration and, and giving it a reasonable voice, tapping into racism and giving it a reasonable front. You know. Morrison doesn't know how people feel. He thinks he does. But he's a very unusual person. He's not like most Australians. He's not the guy that he pretends to be. So the fact that he thinks he can stand up and make, you know, econometric arguments about wage growth and inflation and basically say to people it's okay for you to go backwards and for you to pay 110% of the fourth and fifth days of your salary as a working woman on childcare and that's just life. People are going, this guy's completely out of touch because he is. He is. Let's uh, let's turn to um, some analysis of uh, the uh, ads that have campaign ads that have started to hit our airwaves. Um, we were talking off air beforehand about the we noticed that a whole bunch of ads are starting to appear on our TV screens. I rarely watch free to wear television, but because I watched the debate last night, I did pick up it. One the first ad break that I had in the debate, there were three ads. The first one was a Tory negative. The second one was a Labor negative, and the third one was a incoherent rambling from um, Palmer. Um, we uh, then I've just done a bit of research and I've sent some of these ads through to you guys for your own uh, thoughts. Um, Labor's uh, put out a 15-second and a 30-second ad atta- attacking the Morrison government on both cost of living and rising debt, um, and uh, attacking the central argument of the Liberal campaign, um, which is who's best to manage the economy, which I think is interesting, and that's I think that's I'll get your thoughts on that. And the second one is that the Libs have put out a um, well, even in the last. 24 hours, there are at least six negative uh, ads that have been dropped online from the uh, Liberal campaign, including my old favourite, which is the what I call the Dirty ALP Logo Creative, which they just love rolling out at every campaign, to which voters must look, oh, Dirty ALP Logo, better vote for the Liberal Party. Um, there's a whole bunch of ads like that have come out. Um, I want to get, um, uh, David, your thoughts thoughts first of all, about what you've seen from Labor in terms of uh, the, the negative uh, 30 second and, 50, and uh, 15 seconds coming out from the, from the campaign? Well, I have uh, watched a fair bit of commercial television despite my best efforts this week, and the media buy is very heavy from both uh, Coalition, Labor and Palmer. Uh, and so I think that's the first thing to note is we're seeing that big ramping up that you get and we'll endure that for the next little while. I was pleased with Labor's ads. We've talked before about how I think that negative template they're using is effective. Um, it's not my job. It's not my job. It's not a race. That, that, that's all very effective. And I was happy to see them go um, on these economic questions um, for two reasons, really. The first is keeps the conversation tied into cost of living and people's experience of wages vis-a-vis cost of living. And secondly, because it is degrading a perceived Liberal Party strength. Uh, and we do need, in my view, um, not often a popularly held view inside Labor, but we do need to talk about debt because the fact that they've tripled it, the fact that they doubled it before the pandemic, um, does astonish people. And it it is an effective uh, inoculation for Labor against this creeping proposition, well, how does Labor pay for its policies? Why are Labor's policies not costed? Um that, 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 that the best way to defend our policy offering um, is to demonstrate that, in fact, the Liberals with no policy offering um, have given this country uh, historically 
unprecedented levels of debt. So I thought the ads were doing good work in making that argument uh, in 15 and 30 seconds, and I was pleased to see them. Emma, your thoughts on the Labor contrast? Yeah, no, I think that I, I agree with David. Um, they are effective and they are sharp, and it's a message that will resonate. You know, frustratingly, because uh, it's look, it's the hypocrisy of them having run on debt and deficit for the better part of two decades and now having this massive debt. You, you'd be crazy not to turn that on them, right? Um, I'm in the school that says, look, uh, debt's not the issue that it should be. But this one is because, and they're, they're doing this well because they're saying massive debt and nothing to show for it, right? Nothing to show for it. Labor may have run up, up deficits during the GFC, but we're still benefit, benefiting from the school halls and the um, solar panels and the various investments that were made around the country. So I think it is a legitimate thing to do. And I think the way the ads have been put together, they're effective. They The tone's right. The messaging sharp, the language is good, and they cut through. Um, and as I've said every week since week one of this podcast, uh, it's not necessarily a dark art to run a negative campaign against this guy. It's just telling the truth. Mm. Here, here. The. I went onto the Liberal Party's YouTube page um, this morning and I saw that there's six very short clipped ads. I, I don't know where they're running them. Some of them look like they're in sort of a – they might mostly be digital ads because they were yeah. framed up like uh, as if they were a, um, a, a, an Instagram story or a, or a um, TikTok story. Um, but they all had the same theme um, in terms of the central argument against Albanese. Um, David, to you, first of all, what are your thoughts on doing multiple different ads as opposed to you know picking two or th- one or two creatives like Labor have done and then just pumping that out over the remaining two weeks of the campaign? As a, I'm just surprised that the Liberals have gone with like six or seven, and then yesterday there was they dropped another six, and the day before that there was another four, and I'm just wondering are they are they spreading themselves too thinly across across um, across a whole set of different creatives? Entirely depends on how big their media buy is. Your media buy can only sustain a limited number of ads, but if it's big enough, it can sustain several. Uh, I think the other thing is uh, some of these ads are just digital. And as we've discussed previously, you do need to mix it up in digital platforms because if you present a template ad in digital platforms, people will just skip over them um, in a way that they're not able to on television. So I, I don't see that as a creative weakness for the Liberal ads. Um, and I, I, I think the Liberal ads, just, you know, to continue that thinking, um, are in fact, we've talked before about how their template, Life Won't Be Easy Under Albanese, is a flawed template. But notwithstanding that sort of foundational weakness of the Liberal ads, their ads are nonetheless gnawing away at Labor weaknesses. Um, and they're essentially pursuing two themes, Um uh, and we, luckily for Labor, we can see these themes early because they first appear in News Limited publications. Um, so it's not easy. It's not so Albanese first appeared mm. in the Daily Telegraph and then um, as part of the integrated effort between News Limited and uh, the Liberal Party, it turned up as a, uh, as a theme. And sure enough, the Courier-Mail, is Anthony Albanese really up to this? Um, we... we and sure enough, that's a theme that has turned up in liberal advertising too. So their theme now is, uh, is Anthony Albanese really up to this? Look at his mistakes, look at his gaffes, uh, his lack of command of detail. 
Um, that's proposition one. Proposition two um, is the one we're um, you know familiar with, which is that um, uh, labour labour and its policies can't be afforded. So uh, th these are both, I think, hurting. Uh, they're just not hurting at the same rate as the Liberal proposition is suffering. Mm. Um, I, I think Morrison's standing is sinking. It's getting worse, not better. Um, and I think the, the policy ground is good for Labor and the policy ground the Coalition hoped to be on, they're not on. But uh, that does not change the fact that the Liberal Party ads um, are out there hurting us where it hurts. And I, I certainly have spoken to people this week who do ask the question, oh, I'm not, is Anthony really up to it? Well, you know, he's been a legislator for 25 years, blah, blah, blah. Um, it, the, the coalition um, is hurting us on that front. Replaying um, those gaffes, alleged gaffes, um, is hurting us, uh, but it's just not hurting us enough to beat us. Emma, do you uh, do you smell desperation in the air from the Liberal campaign on, on this when you look at all those ads, or what, what's your initial thought as a voter? I smell, I smell desperation. Um, they're dropping so many of them with the same message. Uh, that, to me, says that it's not getting the traction that they want. Um, I agree with David. It's hurting us, but it's probably only hurting us with people that are already convinced of that position. Uh, and, and a few swinging voters that might have been wavering, going, well, is he really up to it? Um, the, the sort of saturation of this makes them go, well, hang on. <laughs> this is a bit over the top now. Have they got anything else to say? And this is the problem. They don't have anything else to say. And I think they underestimate the intelligence and engagement of the average Australian swinging voter, partly because they're taking a lot of these lessons from the US. Um, there are no uh, votes out there to be harvested in Australia. We have compulsory voting. And so our swinging voters are generally slightly more engaged than they are in other countries. And I think that there will be enough of them that will go, this is pretty desperate playing the man stuff, you know. It's it's playing the man. What He's just not up to it because he's flubbed a few lines. <clears throat> I also think that because of that, looking, you know, going right back to day one of the campaign, because that notorious gaffe was on day one, people are sick of hearing about it now, right? They, it, it's playing badly. The longer the six-week campaign goes on, what they're still talking about what this guy said on day one, he said a lot since then. So there'll be, the, there'll be people that respond to it, sure, but I think there's enough out there that go, haven't you got anything better to say? Haven't you got anything new to say after five weeks? You know, So I think it does show some desperation. And I think I concur with David's last line completely. Yes, it'll hurt us, but it won't hurt us enough to beat us. I wonder if it's um, too little too late as well. I mean, we've already had four days of voting. Um, I, I, look, I, I'm only speculating that these types of negative digital ads have only started being dropped this week. If they'd been running for the six weeks of the campaign we may be in a different situation. But yeah, well, see, this is where I just think the, you know, the, the, the interplay between, all, between News Corp and all of its various arms and Liberal Party messaging is very, very tight. Uh, we do see key lines in Liberal Party ads first appear as editorials and as headlines. And, and so they have been hearing this stuff mm. for a while. Okay. Uh, you know, I think the, the is Anthony Albanese really up to it um, is, is a dangerous line because it's, working on a perception that News Limited has spent the whole campaign trying to build. So I'm not, I'm not dismissive of this threat at all. Um, I just don't see it as um, being facial. No. 
let's... Um... And I think we should talk about Palmer because uh, this is a big media buy and Palmer's doing in this campaign exactly what he did in 19. Well, in fact, even more artfully this time. I mean, he, in his all of his utterances and all of his material, his line is basically get rid of Liberal, get rid of Labor, get rid of Greens, get rid of everybody, vote Palmer, freedom, you know, I'm going to change the world and I won't explain to you how. Um, but, of course, we know he's how to vote cards favouring Conservative candidates. So his messaging um, and what he's actually doing on the ground are different. And, and we've seen, I think, uh, enough, enough analysis that it, it's for a large part, a large part of his constituency we're going to find in regional Australia and as disenchanted voters in the outer suburbs. So mm -hmm. this is a threat to us because yeah. he, he is turning disenchanted, disengaged um, voters of different kinds, you know, anti-vaxxers and all kinds of characters, um, into effectively coalition voters through a preferencing grindstone. And he doesn't care if his own candidates don't get elected. His mission is to do precisely that and he's doing it. So um, I think that the Palmer advertising is keeping that lead balloon in the air. Yep. Um, and it's uh, not to be dismissed either. No, and I think it's a really important point, David, because where it's playing well is in those seats that are traditional Labor seats but had a reduced margin over the last decade, right? So seats that we desperately need to hold um, while, we're, while we're pursuing the seats we can get off the Libs in order to form a majority. So and I can see a seat like Flynn or Ongman, yep. uh, you know, some, some of those Queensland seats, I can just see you know, a Palmer vote there being significant enough to save the Tories. Yeah, and, and then even in some of the marginals, well, not even marginals, but some of the outer suburban seats that we've got in Victoria, like McEwen and Karangamite or in, yeah. um, in Sydney, like Parramatta, you know, these preferences are going to play a significant role there because they're people that were that come from our traditional working class base but were very disenfranchised by the actions of state governments and so on over the last couple of years but have also been bad. They feel left out of the economic project, you know, um, and Palmer's really playing on that. And if those preferences then go to the libs, um, then that puts us in danger in some seats that we wouldn't normally have to worry about. Looking at, it's probably not, not a bad opportunity to now to sort of segue into some conversations around polling. We've had three new polls come out since we all last spoke. Uh, Ipsos uh, News Poll and good old Roy Morgan. Um, and to that point, if you tell, like if you look at the most recent uh, news poll, the United Palmer Party and One Nation total their national primary vote at 9%. Yeah. Um, the Labor Party's on 39% primary and the Liberal Party's on 35% primary. Now, obviously not all that, I mean, it, it probably won't be, that total won't be 9% on election day um, and not all of those 9% of those votes will go to the Liberal Party, but a fair chunk of them will. Um, and if you extrapolate that then into sort of state and then target seats to the, your point, Emma. Yeah, it could be a it could be a bit of a knife fight, um, which you know is a worry because it's, you don't want to take your eye off the ball on yeah. on uh, on on that issue. It's a so it's a sobering thought more than anything. I think is probably a, my takeaway from David and Emma's remarks. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 preventing people um, getting too hubristic about the outcome you know we, you have to bear all the all these things in mind and i think you're right i think the the likelihood of that combined vote being nine percent particularly in 
the southern states, uh, it's 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 not going to be a uniform thing, right? It's going to be in those mm. uh, those marginalised suburbs with, uh, that felt very disenfranchised during the pandemic. Um, it's not going to be a uniform swing across any state even, but it's where it plays out in those individual seats. But the polls, the Ipsos poll is really interesting. It's, it, you know, it's a significant sample. It's, it's over 2,000 people. Um, the and, and it does include, you know, a fair whack of undecided voters, but the way that that was broken down across uh, what that swing would look like, I think it put a, put a Labor majority of about 80 seats. That's encouraging. But then within that, what we're talking about here is which of those seats are going to be more vulnerable to the preference flows from those populist right-wing parties. And that's why you can't take that seat analysis from the Ipsos poll at face value. And it's easy to imagine a circumstance where the Palmer vote you know, based on people who hated mandates and people who hated lockdowns and all the rest of it, and who suffered um, during COVID, um, uh, are, bo- uh, are then reinforced by voters who shrug their shoulders and say, well, you know, Morrison's a turd, but I'm not sure Albo's ready. Um, I'm going to do something else. And lo- so, you know, I'm worried about low education, low income voters. Um, as we've described in some of these regional and outer suburban places, mm. uh, inadvertently then becoming coalition voters through the Palmer um, mill. And uh, I'm not worried so much about what that does uh, really in Victoria. Um, I'm worried about what that does in Queensland. Because yeah. if, if you'd been living on Mars and you just la- or been on holiday on Mars uh, for a period of time, then you come back to Australia and you've just looked at this set of numbers albeit national polls, and I know that we, we've discussed this in the past, how limiting they are in terms of trying to work out what will happen on election day. But you look at that Labor Party primary across NewGov, uh, News Poll and, and Ipsos, is, you know, uh, the News Poll one's reasonably good, that's 39%, um, and but Labor's uh, primary in Ipsos is only 35 Historically, that doesn't bode you with a lot of confidence about going into election day when, in, when it's, you know, sort of mid-30s. But at the same time, then you look at the Liberal Party primary, you know, the Ipsos one, it's at 29. That's terrible for them. Um, and then on the uh, News Poll one, it's 35. But then you've got this huge big other just sitting there. And that's the thing that I just still can't, I mean, to picking up from the point about United you know, you know, Palmer and, and One Nation, we've also got that other vote, 6% uh, other for the News Poll and 10% in the Ipsos one, 12% in the, the Roy Morgan one. That's still a lot of... Votes right now that, being placed. That is the you put your finger on it. That's the key problem the Tories have got. That they've got to be in the forties because yep. they don't have um, that green um, vote that we know eighty percent of green voters are going to preference Labor whether the Greens like it or not. Mm. Um, whereas um, you know, a, a Liberal vote on thirty five spells doom. So mm. they need to lift that primary. Yeah. Well. They do. And- and I just want to jump in. It was actually, I think I misspoke. It was a YouGov poll that said Labor was on track for 80 seats, but it was quite a similar outcome to the Ipsos. Um, but, yeah, I, I agree with what David just said there too. With a primary that low, it's very difficult to see them forming government from that basis because they won't get a, you know, they won't get a consistent flow of preferences from the populist right-wing parties. Um, <clears throat> uh, so their, their primary is a concern for them. I didn't mean to interrupt. I was just going to say the government comms team um, at mm. News Corp have jumped onto this. You know, the headlines are saying Labor's got 80 seats, so they yeah. are now trying to frighten the electorate into 
into thinking on the one hand, well, Labor's got this in the bag, so maybe I can do something different. Yeah, exactly. And on the other hand, Labor's got this in the bag, gee, are they really up to it? So, um, uh, yeah, the, 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 they're trying to turn Labor's strength at this moment into a vulnerability. Nice segue, David, into the media, and I'll stick with you. Um, your uh, mm. impressions of our friends in the Fourth Estate uh, this week? Uh, well, I, I mean, as you know, I'm pretty have pretty low regard for them on the best of days. But this was a particularly bad week, I thought, for um, the uh, journalistic community here in Australia. I mean, that shit show on Channel Nine, that debate that the channel and its participants refused to acknowledge was the shambles that it was. Um, but remember how this week started. We saw uh, every single News Limited paper in the country carry a big fluffy piece about Morrison and his family on the Saturday. And then every single paper on the Sunday had an exclusive, incredible headline revealing that John Howard was voting Liberal. <laughs> it wasn't a shock. Uh, and was critical of Albo. At that weekend was really News Limited signalling that it is just, it's all in and it's putting every day and every paper and every asset into this fight. And, and, and that's how it's been on every day ever since. So uh, I don't think we've seen uh, that kind of coordination or, or, or buy-in by News Corp into the Liberal Party ever before. Um, not not to the level where we now see Liberal Party slogans first appear uh, on the front page of News Limited papers. So um, an absolutely contemptible performance which puts all other Australian media into the shade and my vote for Tory with a typewriter has got to be James Campbell with that revelatory story um, about John Howard apparently being a Liberal voter. <laughs> It's Two weeks in a row, we're on a unity ticket. <laughs> I might vote for James Campbell as well. In fact, I'm shocked we've got this far into this election campaign without James Campbell getting a vote. So it's time to bring him back into, into the competitive league table. Not not just that story, but the, the front page, double inside page spreads of Josh and his family. Yeah. And, yes. and Morrison and his family means everything to me, you know, this kind of dog whistle rubbish against elbow. Um, and the, you know, the, oh, uh, Howard and Howard Lash's elbow is a, what was it, a left wing bomb thrower or something. Now, James is absolutely busting a gut for the libs in this last, uh, last couple of weeks. And, you know, he's not just writing the stories, he's the political editor. So he's deciding that those, um, those propaganda pieces going to those tabloids uh, for, for Josh and Scott. Uh, so, no, James, is ab it's a unanimous vote again this week. Congratulations, uh, James Campbell. I, um, I must note that um, there's, a, there's a GIF that, is, that does the rounds now among sort of Labor Party, Victorian Labor Party uh, campaigners. Someone managed to catch the, uh, the, the, the film image on the Sky News 2018 election coverage the moment when someone had slipped a note to James Campbell, uh, I think it was Conroy actually, uh, of that Labor has now just won the seat of Ringwood and James's face when he looks at the note is like, oh, like he's just absolutely devastated. Like he wants to chuck it in. You can see he wants to leave right there and then and someone's just caught 
here's that moment. And it's kind of like a, a, a gift that we also send around to each other about when we're just sort of just outraged and disappointed about what's happened in life. Um, and so thank you, but James. It goes to my frustration, Stephen. I, we still call these people journalists. I know. He's I know. a former I, Helen Shardy I mean, staffer, for Christ's sake. I mean, it's like being in ALP headquarters and calling in your media team and saying, hey, guys, lucky you've got a couple of television stations and a whole lot of newspapers. Here's the, here's the talking points for tomorrow, and they just go off and do it. I mean, in the poor old Labor Party, all of our friends in the journalistic community see, see themselves as having two jobs. The first is to tell us we're not left-wing enough, mm. and the second is to root for the Greens instead of Labor. Yeah. Um, we, we, we've got a group of, you know, thoughtful critics who, who, who are convinced that they do a better job than the Labor Party. They've got an empire that is utterly integrated into their messaging, and I'm both appalled and jealous simultaneously. <laughs> ditto, ditto. And, um, yeah, I got, uh, look, let's just I'll repeat one thing about this. The, the centre-left media, as they identify themselves, are increasingly cheerleaders for the Greens. And I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a subscriber to the Saturday paper and the monthly, and I, and I support the Guardian financially, but I think there, there needs to be sort of some reckoning at some point where we go, this is, you know, there is a centre-left voice here and a party that represents the majority of left people and they're not getting... We don't want propaganda, right? But the amount of articles I've read by people like uh, Osman Faruqi, Ben Eltham, um, others in the Saturday paper that critique Labor from a clearly Greens perspective, mm. that the, the critique of Labor is that their policies aren't Greens policies. And that's not balanced either. So, And The Guardian, for instance, will never, ever criticise the Greens. No. They don't want to offend their own subscriber base. And the same with Saturday paper, the piece by Mike Seckham, a lot of time for Mike Seckham. He's the first go-to, him and Paul Bongiorno, every Saturday morning. But the piece on Bant this week was basically a hagiography. So we have 100,000 wealthy trots subscribing to a couple of papers um, that drives their editorial into the Greens and effectively off a cliff as far as the rest of the country is concerned. Um, and that leaves the Labor Party both having to win the fight without any newspaper support um, while, you know, Rupert does what he does. It, 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 it it drives we could me do a whole podcast series on this, David, <laughs> you and I. <laughs> All we'd need would be some listeners. You're uh, I, if, I, um, it's growing. It's at least 16. I counted the other day. Um, I, I want to get your thoughts. I don't know if you saw the press conference that was uh, done during the week between, with Daniel Andrews, the Premier of Victoria, and Anthony uh, Albanese to um, announce uh, the Federal Labor's um, uh, policy funding for the suburban rail loop. I think Daniel found it very therapeutic. Uh, I, I think I, I think he really did. Look, and I say this is this certainly is not a criticism of Anthony at all. More of a, more as a, a, an observation of watching Daniel um, in that environment. One knows how to hold the room. He had those journalists under control as much as they wanted to lose their shit at him. For some reason, he just managed to have them spellbound, and they all managed to sort of shut the f up. Two, knows how to get a grab for the TVs that night, you know? Or several. Yeah, or several. And I felt sorry for poor Elbow because you can see him bobbing in the background <laughs> desperate to get back on television. But uh, and, and as Daniel sort of said, don't get me started, and then away he went. Um, it was just, it was theatre, and I loved every moment of it. And it just reminded me how how fortunate we are to have such a great leader here in Victoria. I don't know this is a, this is a, this is a cheerleading podcast for Daniel Andrews, so, you know, I'm not trying to mask anything here. But it was just, it was a performance, and I loved every moment of it. 
He's he's mastered the media press conference. It's not surprising. He's spent about, what, thousands of minutes, hundreds of hours doing them for the last two or three years. He's fit. Um, he's really fit. He's really match fit for the media and it shows. And he knows how to cut a line through, like you say. He knows how to get that grab. Um, but he's also not scared of them. He's just not scared of them at all. And it shows and they don't know how to react to that. Uh, because what we're seeing increasingly, you know, with the how can you how can you stand up to Xi Jinping if you can't stand up to us, is this belief among some journos, new generation of journos, that they're part of the game mm. and that they can intimidate politicians and they can't intimidate Dan. And it's great. Um, and I think it did it did look good. It was also, let's face it, two mates, two infrastructure nerds, um, two two good mates, two infrastructure nerds. Uh, talking about the kind of thing that make their socks go up and down, which is rail. But the other thing about this is people love it out there, right? When when the suburban rail loop was announced, um, there was a big push by the, the media here in Victoria and by the Libs to sort of say, oh, this is not needed, there's no business case for it. People want it mm. and they want that kind of vision and they want that kind of... Uh, something that's going to cut their commute, something they can see that's real and tangible. Uh, so I know I think it was a very good and well-timed uh, joint appearance. It's great policy. I remember at the time John Fain was still doing ABC Radio and everyone was calling Talkback were all calling back saying how much they loved it. And John kept on saying, are there any members, are there any people out there in the community that aren't members of the Labor Party that want to call in? Because everyone just thought it was the best policy announcement I, I've ever heard. I had a similar conversation with one of uh, Fain's producers last week. He said, you know, it was really... It was really evident that we couldn't find anyone that was against this thing. Oh, I can... Anyone that was not Anyway, we could talk about that uh, as a, you know, but we've run out of time. Okay, let's just do a quick wrap up. Um, who won the week? Uh, to you, David, first, and then uh, then Emma. Uh, well, it was a week of real trench warfare, wasn't it? Um, and there was a lot of shrapnel hitting both sides. I think Labor, but um, it was a closer run thing than we'd like to admit. Emma. Um, workers won the week. Um, I think, you know, yes, Labor Labor won on a on a slim margin, but it was it was working families that won the week because uh, our, the the leader of the opposition and the alternative prime minister said, yes, absolutely, your wages should keep pace with the cost of living. That meant that working families won the week, but also Albo won the week because uh, it's on our turf and that response was absolutely spot on. So yeah, it wasn't it wasn't. Um, you know, it wasn't a slaughter, but because I think the ground of this debate has shifted to our territory and because that focus on cost of living and wages neutralises the strong economic management um, advantage that the Libs have always played to, and they've, as David said earlier, they've run screaming away from the Kharki election because that kind of blew up in their face with the Solomon Islands thing. Uh, yeah, that we've won the week simply because we're fighting the battle on our preferred turf, and that is nine-tenths of winning any battle. Wonderful to see you uh, both again. You're my two favourite loose units. I uh, uh, really enjoyed uh, tonight's uh, conversation. As uh, I know a lot of our um, listeners have sort of been reaching out to me and saying how much they've really, really enjoyed the uh, the, the first four episodes that we've done together um, and they're looking forward to each Friday morning when they come up. So thank you very much for your contribution again uh, to tonight's show. We've got one more show to do next week. Um, also, just to note to everyone out there, we're doing a bonus podcast next week as well, which will come up on Monday. We're speaking to four different campaigners from representing the states of uh, Queensland, New South Wales, 
uh, Western Australia and someone just to cover off all the other all the other states where we're going to do a bit of a breakdown of all the key battleground seats. So it's a bit of a form guide for election night, and hopefully we can try and uh, whether work out whether or not Labor's going to win this damn thing. Um, and um, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and obviously, um, uh, Emma and David will join us again uh, late next week for our final episode before Election Day, fingers crossed. And if you haven't, as I've said to you each week, if you haven't volunteered in this campaign, there's nothing else for you to do. We don't need any more policy polls or strategy steves. All of that stuff is done. The only thing that you can do now is either... Uh, get uh, onto a pre-poll and hand out Labor Party how to vote cards or even better, go knock on doors or make calls to targeted, undecided or persuadable uh, voters. To do that, volunteer at uh, alp.org.au nationally or if you're in Victoria, go to thisislabor.org slash volunteer and one of the field organisers will give you a call. You get heaps of training, meet some wonderful people, um, become best friends with a whole bunch of passionate Labor Party people that want to see change. Um, and it all uh, comes down to it on the 21st of September. But we'll, uh, until then, we'll see you next week. Hey there. Thanks for listening to Social Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And to get all the latest updates on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday.